This episode is brought to you in part by Regent College, Vancouver, Canada. Experience God's call to a life more abundant with our one to two week summer courses. Sign up today at rgnt.net slash summer. You're listening to Quick to Listen. Each week we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee. I'm an assistant editor here at Christianity Today, and I am joined, as usual, by our editor-in-chief, Mark Galley. Good afternoon. Likewise, Mark. It's good to have you here. Good to be here. Good to be here on a rainy day. We've had our first rain in weeks here. October rain. October rain, yep. All right. Who's our guest today? Well, our guest is David Youth. He's the pastor of First Baptist Church in Orlando, Florida, a congregation of some 17,000, and more particularly to our podcast today, a congregation that stepped into the messy aftermath of the Orlando nightclub shootings that took place about a year ago to express the love of Jesus Christ to all affected by the shootings. And you'll hear why that, why he's a perfect guest for us. Welcome, David. Hey, great to be with you guys. Anything interesting going on in Orlando right now? Yeah, well, you know, it's amazing. Our mayor, I was with the mayor yesterday, and he's been having conversations with the mayor of Vegas. And just so much of, of our people right now, are, our hearts are really, really touched by what's happening there. And so it's almost like this community has been joined to the Las Vegas community through tragedy. And so I kind of sense it. It's almost like we're reliving some of the pain we went through after the Pulse shooting. Yeah, I can imagine you are. So let's just get into the conversation right now so we can begin kind of exploring that in greater detail. As most listeners know, 59 people are dead and hundreds more wounded after a gunman opened fire from his hotel room onto an outdoor music festival in Las Vegas at the beginning of this week. The massacre is the deadliest shooting in modern American history. Prior to this shooting earning this ugly distinction, last year's attacks in Orlando held this title. There, a gunman killed 49 people and wounded 58 others at a gay nightclub last June. In the aftermath of the attacks, David's church reached out to two of the young men critically wounded in the attack, covering their rent until they could return to work. The church also offered their facilities free of charge to victims' families who wanted to hold funerals there for their loved ones. What is it like for the church to reach out? To a community in the aftermath of a historically violent and savage event? How does caring for the area change after the media leaves? How can churches work together to restore a community? We are going to delve into all of that today. And just before we get into this discussion, I'd like to remind everyone that this podcast is made possible by everyone who subscribes to Christianity Today. And again, everyone who has subscribed as a result of the podcast, we are so thankful. Thank you so much for doing that. And one thing that I just wanted to touch on that is in our October issue is Mark actually wrote an editorial about repentance. Well, it was to remind us that the very first of Martin Luther's 95 Theses, which is uh, being celebrated this month for the 500th time, his beginning of the Reformation by posting 95 Theses for debate. His very first one uh, said that the life of the Christian is a life of repentance, and most of us tend to forget that, that that's really core to his message and certainly the message of the New Testament. And it's an especially important message in our culture, which has increasingly become a culture of blame, shaking the finger at others, whereas the first place that Christians certainly should be shaking the finger at is at themselves and how they fall short of what God calls them to do in their families and their societies. So it's an argument that we should, if, if possible, recreate a culture of repentance in the church, and maybe that's why we can be a healing agent in our 
society, which has become a culture of blame. If you don't already feel convicted by Mark's words right there, you can pay. (laughs) (laughs) You can pay an indulgence. (laughs) And read them all over again. (laughs) Um, That's good. (laughs) Again, we invite everyone to do that at orderct.com slash quick to listen. It's orderct.com slash quick to listen. I personally think that the editorial is among the stuff that you'll read by Mark that's worth your time, though you might not always enjoy reading it, as an FYI. All right, we have all these questions for David, but before we do that, we just wanted to have our gut check really quickly. The time of the show, of course, where we kind of, Mark and I give our visceral reactions to this information. So, Mark, I'll start with you. I guess I was both deeply saddened and I I don't know what the word would be. It was, oh no, here we go again. Whatever that feeling is, uh, that's what overcame me. And a thought that's been coming into my mind after each one of these situations, here here I am reverting from a culture of repentance to a culture of blame <laughs> to show that I'm an inconsistent human being and somewhat of a hypocrite. It does make me wonder sometimes, this is the thoughts that have been popping in my head when I hear about these things, is how much does Hollywood's glorification of violence and guns, which happens in so many movies, and as a guy, I've enjoyed a lot of those movies, I'll admit to that where the way you solve a problem, most problems are solved in these movies, obviously by people shooting other people with these glorious, shiny weapons. And I just can't help that think when someone is at the end of their rope and they're just thinking, I am just so angry, I'm so frustrated, what am I going to do? It doesn't surprise me that more and more are thinking, I'm going to do something, I'm going to start shooting people. I don't know, That's that may be completely irrational and not backed up by science, but you asked for my immediate reaction and that was it. That was it, guys, in case you were wondering. So I would say my gut reaction was a combination of feeling crushed and feeling cynical at the same time. I know that I've spoken about on this podcast before about how I just feel often like a sense of personal connection when there are mass shootings and also terrorist attacks because I can often see myself increasingly in these situations, whether it's office shootings or movie theater ones or um, congregations congregations as has happened a couple weeks before this or outdoor festivals or concerts you know places that are very kind of everyday life activities are often the ones where these types of horrible things take out and or take place and so when they happen I just feel a different type of empathy because it feels so relatable to my life so I felt very crushed on uh, in that sense and then the, the cynical part was just bracing myself for everyone else's visceral reactions and exhaustion that I just knew was going to kind of come to a standstill when it took place on the internet. I will say that I kind of like feel a third reaction in there, which is often that I wish I could be, I wish I could get in the room with a lot of this emotion, which I know many people would want like to run away from, but I actually feel like I could like translate for people sometimes and help them at least maybe not agree with each other, but like hate each other less. Seriously, I think that's one of the gifts you bring to the table in a lot of conversations. So well, thank that would you. be a good thing. Thank you. Yeah, no, I'm, I mean that. All right, guys, we can go back to my translation skills later. And I appreciate it, Mark, for compliment. David, I just wanted to to kind of get maybe your gut reaction and what this week has been like for you. Yeah, it, it, it was the same as when I saw what happened here. The brokenness, the, the sense of the broken world we live in. And and let me let me kind of walk walk that out just a little bit as I watch that thing un, unfold. It just it was just a reminder that that this is the world we live in. This is unfortunately the way our culture is going. The evidences of brokenness take on many forms. There's a lot of different things that that surface out of that brokenness. So for me, 
it is a reminder of the incredible hope of the gospel. It's a reminder that this is the time for the church to be the church, to be the light. You know, the the darker the night, the brighter the light shines. And so I've, I've been wrestling, and I, I give an example of this. About two years ago, we had a woman in our church murdered, and she was murdered by uh, a man that came into her home. It was a, uh, a forced entry, and he murdered her and so she was one of our faithful folks and taught one of our life groups and just a wonderful lived lib by herself. She was a uh, she was a widow. And whenever I got the guy's name, they finally got him. They apprehended him. I, I just for some reason, we started checking. Well, who is this guy? Did you know he is a guy who was registered as a guest here at First Baptist? He had attended on multiple occasions. Now, he did not know her. He didn't know her. It was a random thing. He happened to be running from the police and broke into her house and and um, and then ended up murder, murdering her. But but here's what went through my mind when I saw his name. We had a chance. He was here. He was here. What could have happened if he had repented and turned to Christ? I mean, I began to see then this incredible connection between the church and the purpose and the mission of the church and the degradation around us in the, in the communities. And so it's always when I see brokenness, when I see a shooting like this, it is just another alarm going off to call the church back to our mission, back to our purpose. We must be about the mission of the church. That was my first thought. Can you maybe you can take us back to Orlando and we can talk about that for a little bit. Um, Where were you when you found out the shooting in your hometown? You know, it was a it was early on a Sunday morning. And and I remember when um, when it began to to break. I get news alerts on my phone. So early that Sunday morning, I got up and first thing I do is usually just pick my phone up. And I looked at it and I saw the first uh, the first alert and then several messages coming through. And I sat down on the side of the bed and I said, Lord, help me and help us to look like you right now. Because I knew anger. That's my first feeling, anger, frustration. Mark, I've seen the same movies you have. I wanted to get a gun. Let's go fix this. I mean, let's. It, it's kind of the things that, that, that we're, we're taught to do. It's our culture. And I just said, Lord, help me to be, help me to look like you. And I called immediately. I called three of the large uh, church pastors here in this area that we are all very close friends. And I said to them, we got to do something, guys. We got to bring our people together. Our people are wounded, hurting, confused. This is a time. Now, that was before we knew how many were, were killed. We, at that time, the number was like 20. And so we didn't know. So we started the day off in the first service. We have three on Sunday and one on Saturday night. And so we started the first service off, you know, thinking that, okay, there's been a shooting. There's been about 20 people killed that we know. Of. Well, as the day progressed, it became more and more obvious. This was an incredible massacre of people. So it, it, it changed the day for sure. And it it just, to me, was that call to be the church and to gather the body of Christ in this city and to pray. And so that's what we did on Tuesday night. We opened our building up. We had the mayor. We had uh, the uh, Grimmy family, some of the close friends. Because you remember, Christina Grimmy was shot on Friday mm-hmm. night. Yeah. And then on Sunday morning, the uh, the Paul shooting. So that was kind of the, the way that those early hours and that that first day was spent in my world. So it's it's not like these things, even though they've become more commonplace, have necessarily a, a template for how pastors and church leaders should respond. So where were you kind of learning or figuring out where to go from? Yeah, I didn't have anybody. 
you know, I didn't have another church to call or reach out and say, okay, what'd y'all do? By the way, I did uh, get a call from a good friend who's a pastor in Las Vegas. He called me um, yesterday and, or maybe Monday, Monday night, maybe, and asked me, okay, what do we do? And I walked him through. And so I, I was thankful that I had the opportunity to give give help and guidance. And, and I'll go on and tell you that immediately we sent him $10,000 overnight because I said, you're going to run into needs that you never dreamed that you would run into. I want you to be able to do it without having to think about your budget and without having to go and say, okay, do we have the money to do this? What category should it come out of? All that stuff we do. We did that. We had the opportunity to help people that way. You mentioned already the the guys we paid their rent. We did that for a lot of people. We supplemented some people's income who just did not have enough to make it through the season that they were in with all of it. So I felt like that was going to be one of the ways we could help. For me, I didn't have someone to call. So I I just began to talk to pastors. We we really leaned into each other. What do we do? Okay, what what do you think is the best way to respond? And uh, and so I, I I think it was just really pastors coming together and kind of brothers, brother to brother, helping figure this thing out as we go. Yeah, that's a very interesting comment in that, in a sense, no, nobody wants to have to prepare for something like this. But I think kind of an underlying theme here already is that you had already established good relationships with other pastors in the community so that when something like this happened, you could draw on those relationships for mutual support and uh, mutual upbuilding and ideas. I think that's got to be the response in Las Vegas, because unfortunately, what happens in these in these moments is the divisiveness of churches or the or the, the divisions among us, let's say, are exacerbated in this because we this is a moment to be together. This is a moment to stand together. And so I, pain pain is no respecter of denomination. It's no respecter of tribe. And so when the pain of this community that I saw was so overwhelming, I knew I did not want to stand alone in this. I wanted to be together with brothers and sisters in Christ. And so that actually opened up for us a, a prayer meeting on Tuesday night, which was attended by all our dignitaries, the mayor, the governor of the state, I mean, all of these people. And that meant there were some things said from my platform um, that, you know, put us kind of in an awkward spot. I still get emails about it. Yeah, I read a few of those uh, Internet posts in preparing yeah, for this but, show. you know, <laughs> my, my response was, you know what? We opened our building and we opened our heart to this city. And when you do that, you don't filter what comes. You just embrace what comes. And and so my commitment was, you know what, this is this is not the time nor the place to say, okay, well, we don't agree with that, so you're not going to be speaking. Well, we don't agree with that, so you're not going to be here. I felt like it was a time to embrace. We can sort things out later. Let's embrace in this moment, and let's try to bring healing in this moment. Yeah, I think that was really wise, even though you took a lot of hits for it. Uh, I was going to say this notion of working together, uh, just a little anecdote, is uh, we reported on one church's outreach after the Orlando shootings. And believe it or not, I got a call from another large church in the city wondering why we covered what that other church did and not what they did. (laughs) It just struck me as, ah, I just sighed. And so, yeah, there will be a temptation for competition. And and the painful part of that is, uh, the, the way I say it, Mark, is I don't have problems when I take criticism from the world, from unbelievers, from those who don't do not embrace the same values or the same worldview that I do. I expect that. But the reason it's so hard to take friendly fire in the kingdom is 
I don't know how to explain it to the lost world. It is the worst of witnesses. And and that's what makes it so problematic. And not, not that I have to have Church X or Church Z, their opinion or their support or all. No, it's not that. For me, it becomes problematic when you try to explain it to a lost brother or sister that you're trying to win to Christ. And they say, well, why do I heard that, you know, it, that's what breaks my heart about the division that often comes up at this time. To go back to the aftermath of the shooting, you know, you're in a, a position where not only are you experiencing something that is unprecedented for yourself, but you're also in a place where you're providing leadership to thousands of other people who have never experienced themselves. How did you go about processing the massacre as well and making sense of that? The best analogy I have is is the reason people get seasick, and, and I do as well, is because everything's moving. And and the effect of that on our body is is a, a very nauseating effect. When you see land, you're fine because land's not moving. And so for me, when the world is coming apart, I go to something that I believe does not move. I know I can count on it. I know it's true. And I know that it is right. And so for me, the, the massacre forced me back to the text, to the scriptures, and to my faith. And And that's really where I tried to operate from. In, in the question of, okay, now, if Jesus were right here with me and I were following him, where would he go right now? What, what would he be doing to, to, to minister to these families and to, to be there for a community? And that's kind of my orientation. That's true north for me. The same yesterday, today, and forever, huh? Absolutely. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit in greater specifics about how your church work together to figure out how you guys were going to respond? You know, we've talked about the fact, for instance, that you covered rent. What types of conversations mm-hmm. did you have to have with your staff about that? And how do how do those decisions get made, given that there's time constraints, there's people are feeling emotional about things? The way we minister and, and do the work of the church here is, is primarily through the pastors that God has called. And the immediate conversations uh, were in the context of pastors and lay leadership that we put a lot of faith in and trust. We don't have elders, but they would be, in a sense, the elders uh, of our church. I, I basically began to present, okay, guys, I let me tell you what I'm thinking. What God's put on my heart is that we need to go out there and we need to find as many needs as we can and we need to meet them. And so when they begin to ask, okay, tell me, you know, why you think that? I just began to try to paint the picture for them. And, and that is there is no greater way to demonstrate our love for this community than through a physical, tangible meeting of needs. I mean, James is a great place to go. Uh, you see the, the need. <laughs> We're not going to just say be blessed, be warm, be filled, go in peace. We're going to respond. We're going to do something because I believe it will not only give us the opportunity for the gospel. I just believe it is what our Lord would do. I believe it will honor him. And so that immediately was well received. I said, now let's talk about it because I think you guys know that what made our situation a little more problematic for the church is because it was a predominantly gay nightclub. There were all kinds uh, that would go there. In fact, a lot of our folks would go because this was a Latino night. And so they would go because they love the music, they love the dance. And so it was definitely a club that was open to anyone. But because of its of its reputation as being a predominantly gay club, the, the question then quickly came, well, now, aren't we endorsing homosexuality? And And that was the issue that made me have to work a little harder from the text, from the scriptures, to help them understand. No, there is never a place in Scripture where loving somebody is condoning somebody. I said, if that's the case, then Jesus condoned our sin. Because while we were yet sinners, 
Christ died for us. And for me, there is no prerequisite to love. Biblical Calvary has said kind of love, covenant love is unconditional. And so we don't love them because they live good lives. No, that's not the way we minister. We love because Jesus first loved us. We love because he loves And so it's out of that context. We try to really back up and say, we're going to minister and take care of them regardless of, because we didn't ask. That wasn't the first question, nor was it ever a question as we're helping somebody. Oh, by the way, are you gay? Are you in a relationship? No, you have a need. You were in the club. You were shot. We want to help you. And so I think that made it uh, our response, even though it was quick. I think we had to move a little more carefully because we had to help people understand how You love someone without condoning and embracing and believing everything they believe. Your church was logistically couldn't help personally every single person that was affected by the attacks. So how did you guys kind of like go about, you know, defining who you were going to minister to and kind of what your philosophy of ministry was? We solicited needs. In fact, what what I did for the pastor in Vegas, I said, challenge your people to find the needs. So we tried to be proactive in that rather than just sit back and wait for the needs to come to us. We actually went after them. And I'll tell you what I did. Uh, I scheduled a, an appointment to go and see um, the first gay city councilwoman here in, uh, in Orlando. And she was very much a part of the, uh, of the LGBTQ community here. And her name is Patty Sheehan. And I, I, I scheduled an appointment to go down to see her. And I, I sat in front of her first and apologized for the way that we had not demonstrated love. And I said, Patty, I just want to help. What, what can I do to help? Do you know of needs? Are there things that we can do? And so in the same way that I did that, others would go to friends. And we encouraged our church. I stood in front of the whole church body, said, guys, find out if, if, if you know of a need that's not being met. This may be our opportunity to really demonstrate the love of Jesus by meeting that need. So we were very aggressive and very proactive. How did she receive you? Unbelievable. She wept. I cried. Uh, I embraced her. And uh, she told me an incredible story about when she was a a young lady and and beginning to struggle with her feelings. And she just, you know, wasn't sure what's going on. And and so she went to her church. I'm not going to call the name of it, but an evangelical church here in our community, a big one. And they told her, if that's the way you feel, you don't need to be here. And so once again, and I've heard that story over and over and over. So once again, my heart broke. And I just said, Patty, I'm so sorry. I wish I had been your pastor then. And I tell you, it has begun a relationship. We see each other often. Uh, we had her come to one of our big Christmas programs that year. And um, and we recognized her and just honored her as one of our council women. Now, did we get criticized? Sure, we did. You know, one guy said, I can't believe we're recognizing sinners in our church <laughs> and we're holding them up. And I said, well, we're really doing worse than that. We're letting a sinner preach the sermon every Sunday. I mean, it's horrible. <laughs> it's horrible, exactly. Yeah, it's terrible. We're all going to hell. I mean, that's, I mean, I, I just play right along, and and I didn't mind the comments as long as they would be willing to listen and help me with scripture. And I did ask a few times, "Can you show me that in the scripture?" Because I, you know what? If you can show me that, I want to believe that. Well, there is no place for some of the things that were being said. They were so out of taste, inappropriate, ungodly, but unfortunately. That's what happens during these times. Must uh, discourage you as a pastor knowing these people have been in your congregation for years. And they, <laughs> exactly. And they still haven't well, heard the message of grace after all that know, time. 
I hate to tell you this, but the only way I could uh, <laughs> kind of uh, relieve the pain of that was, well, they must have been here a long time. They hadn't been here just while I've been here. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they got this somewhere else, you know. They, they, they came from another church or something. God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. So, obviously, this was a a big story for the month of June, but, you know, in light of the election and many other things that happened this year, the media moved on. What what kind of stuff did we not see after the media moved out? Yeah, what the media didn't tell you and what, what happened as the world turned their attention to something else was the ongoing relationship building that happened in this community. Primarily, the victims were Hispanic. Uh, many of them, their families could not even speak English. And so what we've been able to do through our our uh, Hispanic ministry here is with our pastor who is over that, uh, we've been able to do events for the families. We On the anniversary of the Pulse, we had almost 100 of the family members of the victims in our service. We honored them and we had them stand. We prayed for them. We had a, a banquet for them. And we opened up our church for the owner of the Pulse nightclub when, when she was going through, when the partners were going through trying to figure out what they were going to do. They actually needed a place to meet. And we knew about it. And we said, well, why don't y'all come to church? And so a lot of our people didn't even realize that there's a meeting going on upstairs every Tuesday. Uh, and, and it's the owner of the Pulse. And they're trying to talk about what they do next. And and we also offered our our uh, a building to um, a big SWAT roundup that came to town, and and we had weekends where we honored all our first responders. We chose one weekend to honor all of the trauma team at Orlando Regional Medical Center. They were the team that saved so many lives that night. We brought all these doctors in and these nurses. And we picked the weekend that was best for them. We had a person help us to work that out. And we lined them up across the front of the church. It it was amazing. You should have seen it. Our people gave them the longest standing ovation I can remember. And and we fed them and took care of them that day. And so those things continued to happen. But I don't think they would have happened if we had not been responsive at the very beginning to demonstrate love and to demonstrate that we are here to be a blessing to people, no matter who they are, no matter what they've done. David, those are really, really powerful stories, so I'm appreciative of you sharing them. I'm wondering if you can also kind of just talk about some of the the trauma that you have seen in the community as a result or any type of like PTSD that, you know, the city of Orlando has to kind of work through that it didn't have before the attack. What I found is, and it was strange, I was not expecting this, that when this thing, when this happened, 
obviously the focus was was primarily on the LGBTQ community because of, of so many that were affected in that community uh, at the Pulse. But what I didn't realize is how it would cause pain to surface in other groups that had been kind of, you know, pushed away or in some way overlooked or whatever. And, and that caught me off guard. And it was as if when a trauma happens, you know, obviously the people affected are, are by the trauma are, are going to be cared for and you need to do everything you can. But what you might want to watch for is that sometimes that trauma creates or, or brings back to the surface some things that others have been dealing with. It, it's raised other issues, issues we needed to address. One is racism, because all of a sudden we began to see this this emerging issue of the way that this city had, the way some things have been done in the city to really uh, create uh, just a separation with our black community and, and even uh, some, some degree the Hispanic community. And it was almost like all this stuff began to surface. And I kept wondering, OK, what's the connection? I think it's people dealing with pain and, and dealing with with it doesn't even have to be their pain at first, but then it kind of touches their pain. And so I, I did not expect that. I mean, I, that was a surprise to me. And I, I guess I wasn't, uh, you know, we don't want to have to be experienced at these kind of weekends or weeks. But I did not really see that. But now that I know, we've been able to really try to address a lot of that. I saw a lot in our church. I saw a lot of people that really developed uh, just real insecurities, lack of peace, anxiousness. I could tell in our gatherings, our, our church attendance was affected for a little while. People didn't want to go to big gatherings because, because you're just, you know, you're playing it in the back of your mind. And so I had to really be proactive. We did with our counseling center and through our pastors. We had to be very, very intentional in addressing the fear people live with and, and that it's okay to, to have that fear, but don't give in to it. Number one command in Scripture, fear not. And so we had to really speak to that. I mean, even among our people, I mean, people that were solid, godly Christ followers. So there were those kinds of things that it created in the aftermath. That's very helpful to just recall that, uh, or to be reminded that these events have waves that keep rolling after, like you say, after the media leaves. There's still there's things, collateral. There's collateral sure that still has to be dealt with for months, if not years. And in all sorts of communities, all sorts of communities that are feeling vulnerable for other reasons. What type of pastoring have you done this week? I mean, obviously the attacks occurred on Sunday night after everyone had gone to church, presumably. But I'm sure it brought back a lot of memories for a lot of people in Orlando. Yeah, it did. And, and, and a lot of anxiousness because this one, you know, this one was very different in that it was an outdoor uh, setting. And, and it was the kind of setting where there's, there's no way to respond to it. I mean, you're talking about somebody shooting out of a 30-second floor, but it created the same kind of fear again. I've, I've been with people, and uh, and it's come up, and they've said, hey, are we doing anything to beef up security or doing it? It's, it's the typical response of just all of a sudden we're kind of shaken and we're a little unsure. <laughs> I've gotten questions in the last day or two about uh, big events that we're planning and things we're looking at, and to which I've said, oh, no, look. You know what? There's no way to take risk out of life. That's not life. That's a prison. That's the only place where you have no risk. And we're not going to be in prison because of what evil has done. And he came to set us free. And we are free to live and we're free to serve one another and just be the church and to enjoy the life he's given us. How would you say the Orlando massacre changed your approach to ministry? That's been probably the best part of this 
it has given me such a deep love for all people because I got, I saw, I saw the church get to really be the church in a time of great need. And, and my conviction became, you know, if our gospel doesn't work in this time, it doesn't work anytime. And if the church can't be the church in this kind of a situation, when will we be? And the other thing is just the value of every human being. This shooting in Orlando, again, because of where it was and who the primary um, victims, who they were, it forced me to a place that I don't know if I would have gone, but it took me to a place where I began to have conversations with people that I might not have ever had. And all of a sudden, we began to see several in our church that have come uh, to us. They're open in their in their lifestyle and um, and they're gay and they and they just say, but we feel loved here. And so that's really been a kind of an interesting dynamic. We've baptized several that came out of the pole shooting. We've baptized several that were there and um, and we baptized them because they trusted Christ and they and they believed. But what's interesting is to watch the process of sanctification as it's begun to change them. And we've been able to tell their story of how they came to the realization that, you know, I don't really need to be in this relationship. I had the lady, the councilwoman, Patty Sheehan, came to our, our staff meeting. Uh, we brought her and some of her staff to our staff meeting. We had lunch together and we openly dialogued. And I let pastors, any of our pastors, ask questions. I let her ask us questions. It was one of the most encouraging things I've ever been a part of. That never would have happened, most likely. So I think the pulse shooting made us go places that Jesus wanted us to go, but left on our own, we probably would have never gone there. And so I will forever be thankful, not for that shooting, but for what God has done through it to really help us to be the church that he called us to be. Yeah, that is the absolute crazy thing about grace, is that God uses these horrific situations to do some remarkable things. It's just, it's a cliche almost, it happens so regularly, but it is nonetheless still amazing. So that's great to, that's great to hear. That's exactly right. Thank you so much for sharing all of that with us, David. And let me say something, if I could, just... Sure. I have been a fan of Christianity Today for a long time. But more recently, even a greater fan, I carry a hard copy, the magazine copy, uh, with me all the time, but the most recent one because of uh, my travel schedule. I'm flying a lot, and so I don't always have uh, access uh, you know, while I'm flying to uh, the Internet. So I carry it with me, and, um, and even the most recent, the September issue that has the noose in memory of these on the front, I think it's one of the most incredible issues. And my background and my story, my dad was fired from a church because of his stand against racism. I was in high school. The Klan came to my dad and threatened my dad. Wow. Uh, and threatened me as, as his son uh, said to my dad, I hate for something, I would hate for something to happen to one of your children, to which my dad stood up and, and said something that is not the most Christ-like thing, but for a 17-year-old kid. It, it it won my heart for sure. Uh, he basically said, if you come to my house to do anything to my children, I will take you out. And he ended up being fired. The last conversation on earth I had with my dad was uh, seven years ago when he died. I was pushing him in a wheelchair and he started crying. And I said, Dad, what's wrong? And he said, I'm just so sorry, son. I lost that church. And I said, what church? What are you talking about? He said, you know, the one that fired me. I said, but dad, you remember why they fired you? They fired you because you loved everybody. And I said, dad, you may have lost a church that day, but you won the heart of your son that day. And I am who I am today because of what you did. And so I've been one that for a long time has 
been a very loud uh, and and boisterous voice uh, against racism because I've seen it. I've seen the pain that it caused. And so I, I want to thank you for that issue, but not just that issue. I want to thank you for what you guys have done to make us think, to make us question what we believe and, and, and what are we doing to be the church today. Well, that is super encouraging. Thank you very much for mentioning that. That's very, very encouraging. We'll be sure to communicate that to the staff. That's great. Please do. Thank you so much, David. Well, yeah, thank you so much for sharing that story and everything that you've shared so far. People have feedback. Again, we invite them to share that with us on our social media channels. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash ctpodcasts and on Twitter at ctpodcasts. Yeah, so now is the time of the show that we call Precious Moments, where we ask people to share a little bit more about themselves and specifically something that is bringing them joy this week, which is something that I'm sure all of us could really just need in this really emotionally exhausting week. Mark, are you ready to go? Yeah, I uh, had a chance to get away uh, from the city, go up to a place called uh, Boyne Mountain Resort. It was one of those deals where you get three days and four nights, I mean, three nights and four days if you listen to a two-hour presentation to buy a timeshare. <laughs> so we took advantage <laughs> of it, baby. And actually, I will I will give props to the Blue Green Vacation people. They did an excellent presentation and a non-pressurized sales pitch. So it was totally worth it then. It was totally worth it. They treated us, the they didn't treat us like mere cash registers. They treated us as human beings. They were cordial and friendly. They did, you know, try to make an argument why we should buy a timeshare and we graciously declined and they still smiled at us, shook our hands and treated us warmly. So, and then we got to enjoy the beautiful Northern Michigan. So it was a nice time to get away. Where can people find you outside of this podcast? Mostly on uh, something called the Galley Report. It's a a weekly report. I create links to articles I found interesting and make commentary on that. And you can find that at christianitytoday.com slash the galley report. That's G-A-L-L-I report. And you can re- re- read the current issue and subscribe to get it weekly in your email box. David, you have something? Yeah, I got to do an interview this morning with a news station out of Tampa, Florida. And they did it at my house because when the hurricane came through, When Hurricane Irma hit, obviously it was a Sunday, and so we couldn't be together. So I just said, you know, we decided, hey, let's do, I'll just do Facebook Live from my house. And I'll just sit in our little study, little office. Uh, My wife calls it her office. And I'll just talk and share scripture, and and then I'll get to hold my grandson. And so this, this news station heard about it. And I don't know what it was that so piqued their interest that they said, is there any way we can come to your house and come to that office? We saw the, you know, the Facebook Live. So the news comes and they just said, tell us what you said. What was it y'all talked about? And, you know, there are not many times today that the secular media, when they're going to air a story um, at one of their evening uh, new, newscasts, that they get to, that, that you get to tell the story. And so I got to just share, hey, this is what I believe. This is the this is how my faith is an anchor, even in a time of storms. And then they said, well, hey, do you mind? Can you bring your grandson in here? My wife keeps our grandson on, on Wednesdays. <laughs> and I said, oh, man, that'd be awesome. So I get to bring him in. Uh, he's five months old. He's our only grandchild. And his name is Sawyer Bo. And I got to hold him in my lap and look her in the eye and say, you know, when that hurricane came through and I was holding my grandson, the thought that went through my mind is, this house, if it gets damaged, so what? It's brick and mortar. It's a house. 
A car? So what? It's a car. That hurricane reminded me my stuff doesn't matter. What matters most to me are the people that God put in my life. And I'm holding one of the most precious gifts that God has given me. And and it was the coolest thing to be able to, at the same time, speak what I believe is truth. Also to be reminded myself, hey, guys, all this stuff doesn't matter. There's really only one thing. And I've always said it's my faith, my family, and my friends. And so may the Lord help us to hold on to what matters and forget the rest. That's awesome. That's really cool that you got to share that. Are you on social media at all? Uh, yes, through our Facebook off of um, uh, First Orlando and then also through Instagram. I've had issues with uh, <laughs> false Facebook accounts, <laughs> so we're having to uh, to be real careful with that. And so, and, and, and the same for the other platforms. So we're having to be real, real careful. But you can find me and anything you would ever want, podcast, everything else, off of our uh, off our webpage, firstorlando.com. Thanks, David. All right. My precious moment is last night I went to an event in a neighborhood in Chicago that I've only been to maybe twice now since I moved here. And they have a basically a set of readings that they do every single month. And the people that they just brought up on stage were really lovely. Someone read this amazing poem. It was an ode to Italian beef, since that is a Chicago <laughs> that is a Chicago special. Mm-hmm. A, a, Italian beef and also um, Jardinero. Is that what they call like those like pickled peppers that you like? Jardinero? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm not yeah. exactly sure how you say that, but... First of all, I've never eaten that until I came to Chicago, and now I eat it on everything. Um, but it was just fun to be what I would call a Chicago affirming place where people just remind you of all the places of why you love the city that you live in. That's um, cool. Yeah, it was really lovely. So I am on Twitter at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. Okay, that's it uh, for this episode of Quick to Listen podcast is a production of Christianity Today, and you can find our other podcasts by searching Apple Podcasts for Christianity Today. Remember to head to uh, orderct.com slash quick to listen to subscribe to our magazine. This show is produced by my co-host Morgan Lee, as well as Richard Clark and Cray Allred. You can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud. If you like the show, make sure to rate it and review us on Apple Podcasts. That helps us a lot. See you next week. This episode was brought to you in part by United We Pray. United We Pray is a podcast devoted to praying and thinking about racial strife, especially between Christians. Come join us in praying for the unity of God's people.